And welcome to the Life Support Live podcast, the weekly podcast that explores how Star Trek can help us to boldly go in our own lives to better ourselves and the rest of humanity. As a famous Starship captain once said, and as another famous Starship captain also once said, the one with the new series on the way, wherever our mission takes us, We'll try to have a little fun along the way. Always, always. That's the goal. Hi, everyone. I'm psychologist Dr. Ali Matu. And I'm Dr. Trek, Larry Nimacek. One of us is a real doctor. And we'll leave it to you to decide who that is. <laughs> hey, every Saturday at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern, we record this show live on Twitch, YouTube, and Facebook with our audience joining in and rebroadcast here as a podcast. If you'd like to join us live, check out the links in the show notes. And now, let's engage with our regularly scheduled program, Already in Progress. On this week's episode of Life Support Live, it's it's a special edition, folks. Um, Stovacor just welcomed a new Klingon warrior. And Aww. so we are going to be celebrating the story of General Chang and um, an identity Wait, and what who? that means for all of us. Wait, who? General Chang. Who? Gen- Larry, there's this, there's this great movie. You got to watch it. Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. There's a lot of Shakespeare in oh, it. Oh, you mean Christopher Plummer. Christopher Plummer. Oh, the, the one and dad only. from the lake house. <laughs> or the wonderful oh. father from The Sound of Music. Okay. Folks, let us know. What's your favorite Christopher Plummer role? Um, sadly, um, uh, he passed well, yesterday. Don't and don't watches The Lake House all the time because it's far <laughs> Star Trek VI in this house right now. <laughs> you know, or you can go with Up. Uh, um, he plays uh, a little bit of the villain in Up. So, folks, what's your favorite Christopher Plummer lo- role? Let us know. Uh, we had ideas for themes. Uh, and then, yes, Christopher Plummer passed. Uh, great long life and career. And there were some people saying, oh, we should do a watch along of six. But, you know, movies take a lot out of the show and yeah. a lot out of our talk time. <laughs> so we thought, why don't we, why don't we, uh, pay homage to him and Chang and Star Trek six, but do it with our more thematic approach? Yeah. Yeah. So what did yeah. you come up with, Ollie? Oh, I have so much, Larry. I have so much for us today. Uh, I mean, um, I mean, Christopher, I, I think you said it well. Um, what a, what a f- wonderful long career from the sound of music to Star Trek six to knives out. Um, you know, as, as recently as, uh, I, I think knives out might have been one of the last movies I saw before the pandemic mm-hmm. and what a joy that movie was. It was so much fun. I, I have a lot to say. So I'm going to have to, uh, you might have to hold me back because Star Trek six. This is my origin story. My brother took me to go see a matinee, um, uh, a doubleheader matinee thing. And it was um, Adam's Family and Star Trek VI. And I was more interested in seeing the Adam's wow. Family. I had no idea what Star Trek was. Nothing. I had seen We're Star two? Wars. What? Nothing. I, I had never seen any anything Star Trek before, I just before think that. You must be young, yeah. Uh, yeah, I was, I, I was on the younger side. Um, I, I had seen Star Wars, but Star Wars kind of scared me a bit, um, cause so many people were losing limbs and every movie, it seemed like oh, someone lost a limb. And Jar Jar, um, yeah. No, this is be- well before episode one, Larry. <laughs> I know, come he's on. He's the punchline. He's the punchline. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Um, 
So my brother took me to see this uh, this double feature, and Adam's family was, you know, it was fine. Um, but then Star Trek VI, um, you know, the lights went down, the the opening crawl, and then poof, the explosion of Praxis and the Excelsior caught up in that shockwave. I was hooked. I was hooked from that moment, and um, seeing seeing the crew work together to solve this problem. <laughs> I just, I was so intrigued by it. Um, I was so intrigued by the villain. I was so intrigued by the ships. I was so intrigued by the ideas. And on the drive home, um, my, my brother was asking me, so what you think? And I'm like, wow, that was great. I so, I really liked it. Oh my gosh, what a fun movie. And he said, well, you know, it's, um, that was Star Trek six, right? There's, that means there's five other films. And I'm like, Oh, that's what that means? I thought it was Star Trek. I can uh, see little VI. Yeah, yeah. I was, and I was like, I thought it was Star Trek VI. This makes a lot more sense to me. I didn't know Roman numerals. <laughs> yeah. I didn't know what that meant. It's a space term. I don't know what that was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I thought it was something Starfleet. And so, um, I think either that weekend or the following weekend, my brother and I went to Blockbuster Video. We grabbed all the Star Trek movies we could. We started watching them. Um, and I gotta tell you, Larry, it was very confusing for me to watch Wrath of Khan, because I'm like, wait, how does he die? How does Spock die? He's back in Star Trek 6. I'm so confused. And then my brother's like, well, we gotta watch Star Trek 3. It's called The Search for Spock. I'm like, oh, man! And so, this movie, um, really changed like New Watcher, yes. (laughs) (laughs) This movie changed the direction of my life, because it, it... led me to Star Trek. It led, and then Next Generation was airing at that time. So then I devoured Next Generation and syndication and also the, the reruns and the new episodes. And, um, so I, it's very hard for me to be rational about this movie. I just rewatched it last night too. It's very hard to me be, for me to be rational because it's, um, I have nothing but love for this film. Yeah. And I, I, well, we were talking about our reaction to the film. So six was uh, I had seen the five movies prior. <laughs> yes, yes, and, and uh, you had seen and, a few episodes too, and a couple of episodes. You know, five. To- okay, so fine, all seventy nine, a few cycles <laughs> around after school. But um, and and six was one that you know, a next generation had been on for a couple of years here. So so it wasn't. I hadn't worked on anything. You know, I was still in Oklahoma. I was still back home. But it was right on. This came out at the 25th anniversary, so this this you know the two part unification had been on just before this, mm-hmm. and this was happening, and I think this was all what happened. So that fit, yeah. So I was like on the verge. I didn't know it, but I was on the verge of getting the deal to write the first edition of the Next Gen Companion, like mm-hmm. within months. But for the last three or four years, I'd be getting press releases from Paramount for the shows for Next Generation. And, um, you know, Deep Space Nine was being rumored about going into production. So this was all it was all a very busy, active time, probably second only to uh, 86 and 94. And Hmm. um, but I remember going because I knew, oh, they've got Michael Dorn in it, but he's playing his grandfather. Okay, stunt casting, you know, and um. But I'm, I went, I enjoyed it, and here's, but here's old fogey fanboy me. I did not appreciate phasers in the galley. I did not appreciate getting books <laughs> out to look at Klingon. There were two or three, which Nichelle Nichols didn't like either, I found out later. 
Hmm. Uh, they, you know, it's retconned away. Oh, the the universal translator use would have given them away somehow because I don't know. They're not smart enough to mask it somehow. Anyway, enjoyed the story. I really loved the whole Cold War. You know, the wall yeah. was coming down. Chernobyl had happened. That was what this was. You know, all that happened, and that was all part of the writing DNA. So I enjoyed the story. I actually was such a still such a hardcore. I had not been beaten down by the Hollywood reality yet that I was sitting there going, well, uh, it was awesome. Wonderful performances. The story was great. But visually, I wish it had just been a radio play. <laughs> that was actually, you know, then we, we'd have, then we wouldn't have to have mashed potatoes in the galley, which I know there's a hobby kitchen. I know all that. But still. So anyway, so yeah, that was my reaction. And then like within a couple of years, it was like, oh, get off your high horse. And, you know, enjoy. I enjoyed it. I, you know, it was like the after Wrath of Khan and, and probably, you know, two, four and six. I mean, it's a package. It's the other trilogy that's not really. Yeah. A trilogy. Well, but, and that's what um, I, re, we were watching it last night. I love the signatures at the end. So, oh, my gosh. Know. The yeah. signatures at the end will uh, bring a tear to me. I mm-hmm. um, the, I'm going to make uh, no one's ever paid homage to that. Ah, uh, what? Wait, lower what decks, was it recently? Lower decks, that... lower, decks lower, lower decks, lower decks. Right, 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 right. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, welcome, welcome. the um the the thing that stuck out to me last night, Larry, as I was uh, rewatching Undiscovered Country in preparation for this, and also just because I wanted to. Um, <laughs> you're partial. It's, it's you're that partial time of six, though. It's that type of week. I'm very partial to six. Yeah. I, again, I'm never going to be able to be rational about six. But um, the thing rewatching it is, I love that it um, it really does tie together a lot of stuff. So it it brings us back to the the Wrath of Khan search for Spock. Um, the line where, where Spock says, I've been, I've been dead before, um, the reference to, um, Kirk there's a lot of meta. his son. Right. Yeah. There's a lot of, a lot of references that go back to Wrath of Khan, Search for Spock, um, to, uh, the voyage home and, um, Kirk being demoted. Um, I think a lot of, um, a lot of the <clears throat> films, with the exception of probably the motion picture and Final Frontier, get some kind of reference in Star mm-hmm. Trek VI. The other heavy lifting that Star Trek VI does, here maybe I can be a little bit critical of Star Trek VI. There is a lot of, heavy dressing of Star Trek The Next Generation sets. <laughs> Maybe oh, well, a see, little that, bit too... That didn't bother me as much as the other, but I I get it. Yeah, I was just like, oh, look, they redress six because they're on a budget and they're saving money and they're being scrimpy. But it they, bugged they, you. And they, now only on this rewatch, I noticed it more. I'm like, oh, wow, there's a lot. Like, engineering. Can, could Scotty get his own engineering, please? Can we just, like... We, I, that's, that's the Enterprise D warp core. Come on, folks. Anyways, um. He's just standing the, there smiling, so it's. Yeah, funny. he's, he's very, he's, he loves looking at a warp core. I, I mean, even don't we sent all? that to you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't we all love looking at a warp core? Um, but what, uh, the other. <laughs> it's the best part of the ship. <laughs> it is. It is. The other, let me put that image up right now. Um, uh, what a lovely, um, what a lovely, I, what I love about this image is, uh, the officer to, uh, to the screen right of him is just looking at Scotty like, like, what's the deal with you? Whereas the engineer to the, to the left, 
I'm sorry, that they the officer to the right is like, what's going on? While the engineer to the um to the left is just like, oh, <laughs> like probably the first time that that officer is seeing the warp core at full at full blast. Anyways, um, the other heavy lifting that six does, it 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 is showing us the beginning of the Kitamura chords. It is tying how we get from the original series to the next generation and peace with the Klingons. So and and as you said, Larry, there's the um social commentary about Chernobyl and the fall of USSR. I mean this and it's a send-off not only to the original series, but also um we see this element of the original series moving forward with the Excelsior. The Excelsior is no longer a prototype. It now has Sulu at the helm, which is tying it back to the voyage home when Sulu sees the Excelsior and Scotty's like, why would you want that bucket of bolts? Um, this movie really, it's its a very nice send-off for the original series cast. Um, when when Nimoy said about Generations, you know, he was invited to do it, but it was a sm- it was more of a cameo. And he said, you know, I really felt like we had a good send-off in Star Trek VI. We wrapped everything up. And that's what it feels like. You know, the signatures at the end, second star mm-hmm. to the right. Um, if I was human, I would say go to hell. I mean, there's all these moments that are just... Um, if you've been watching this crew... You've never heard Shakespeare until you've heard him in the original Bah! 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 Ha! Ma! To be or not to be. He... He quotes a lot of Shakespeare. Larry. Yes, he does. Yes, he does. It's like, it's like all all Shake says is Shakespeare lines. What what a way to live when you're only communicating in in Shakespeare lines. That's uh, uh yeah. Uh, and we and you got David Warner in this besides uh Christopher Plummer too. Yeah, who, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, and I Charlotte just reminded me, Captain Sulu to the rescue. You know, my um, the, I I remember. When I was watching this movie, and Kirk goes, fire. And that, that, you know, <laughs> photon, it's going, it's going all around. And then you see that explosion. And then inside, little Ali was going, yes. And then camera close up on, on Sulu, quick cut to Sulu, close up, target that explosion and fire. Oh, Larry, I lost it. I went, mm. Ah mm, mm. oh, man, that um, Just think, what a all crowd this time, piece. what two ships could have done, you know? Oh, oh uh, yeah, yeah. If the like Enterprise wasn't boat. always, if the Enterprise out. wasn't always the only ship in the quadrant, this is what could have been possible. Yeah, much more <laughs> Maybe, violence. Yeah, yes. yeah. <laughs> so, um, a ton of fun, a ton of fun <laughs> for me. Um, I know this movie. And Larry, help me to understand the uh, the director's cut. I I have the director's cut. I watched the theatrical cut last night because that's the one that was on streaming. Yeah. Um. I um. I actually got to meet Nicholas Meyer at a release for his director's cut back in two thousand four or five, whenever that was. Um. And I got to tell him how much this movie meant to me. He was super nice and generous. But the director's cut does it changes some things. And some for the better, and some some I think are a little bit more choppy. Yes, yeah. yes. There's this is and the there's international a lot more... symbol for Scooby Doo. No, this is the international symbol for uh, <laughs> yes, Colonel West. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. It really is. And the um, also the um, during the um, the interrogation scene, 
there's also um, flashbacks. Um, mm-hmm. So help me to understand that um, were those all Nicholas Myers cuts that that he wanted, or, or how do we get from the theatrical? I, to I, the... I'm not as familiar on that. Somebody in the chat might. Be. It's very easily traceable. I, I can sit here and look it up and tell you. Somebody watching will probably do it faster than I can. But no, he he was. It's a the whole. The whole I keep forgetting at the time, and I have to go back and read it. I was really kind of shocked to read it. It was like you know you're well aware of all the machinations behind all the other movies, and this is the one that I forget how. It's like Paramount Pictures changed ownership, like who was running the studio, like three times mm. <laughs> while this thing was in production, and the movie was actually canceled once. Maybe I'm K threeing too much here. No, but, you can uh, never, Doctor Drake. You they, can never K three you know, too much. If if the third if the third head of the studio making decisions hadn't been a Trek fan, this might not have ever been made. Because mm. for at least a day or two, this was technically canceled. Because Nick Meyer was standing up for a budget that he had been promised by by person A, who was no longer there. And they were quibbling over like $2.5 million out of 30. It, like, $27 million. No, 30. No, $27 million. No, 30. Okay, then we're, we're, we won't say it to your face, but we're canceling. We're going to pull the plug. And then he was like, oh, I over... It was just like Picard in Picard. <laughs> oh, <laughs> they called my bluff. Oh. <laughs> but it was interesting that some of the studio brass did not want to end with five and have that be the last Star Trek movie. But Paramount was a lot like it is now. It was in, in upheaval and was not as well settled. This was a savior movie for them. It actually, you know, did... But they were so burned by the return on five that people were... On eggshells, and it was just there was just a general malaise at the studio anyway. But, um, but I, you know, it's like you forget that 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 happened that way, and then that's and yeah. that is why all your budget cuts are there. There were plans to have actually there, there was actually a whole prologue that was going to show that was scripted and storyboarded that was going to kind of show every what everybody did after four after five, and oh. some of it was really hokey. So I'm almost glad it like Uhura was going to have her own galactic radio talk show or something where she's the host and anyway it was going to be <laughs> some of the things were hokey but um but the scotty segment was about scotty um working on you know the refits and everything and uh, that makes sense um yeah some of the pieces that they, there were a couple of plot points that they tried to get it but then they scrapped the whole thing and saved you know five million or whatever two million from doing that well they got to it the was, action it was a lot more sturm and drang on this but one of those things here's about how good this movie is this is, I was going to mention this eventually, but this is Nick Meyer's book, hmm. uh, The View from the Bridge, where he talks about his, he came back to the franchise, you know, two, yeah. and then limited role four, not directing, but just writing, and then six again, writer and director. Uh, and there was machinations on the writing, which were caught up in the studio politics. But you see the fine, that DNA, you're talking about harking back to things from the past. There's, there's Nick Meyer. You would think with a stupid movie series it would be easy to do th- call outs and shout outs and continuity it's like you're writing 26 shows a year for seven years right right <laughs> you know it'll be pretty easy but that's that's the main reason you've got those touches is yeah it's because a common thread called nick meyer so yeah well i mean um who is still very much still with us it is a great guy and uh, if you ever get a chance to see him live or talk to him he's he's awesome yes he's 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 really lovely and um 
Um, that, that makes a lot of sense. That helps me to understand the budget and the sets and all of that. Um, maybe we should, Scott says that's one of his favorite books ever. Um, that's a, that's a big, mm -hmm. uh, big endorsement. Was that, um, did that book come out before, um, uh, Star Trek Discovery? I'm, I'm assuming. Uh, yeah, this talk is from like, his... this is from 2011, 2012. Okay. So yeah, he doesn't talk about his role with Star Trek Discovery, which I know is also wibbly wobbly. Um, but Larry, maybe yeah, we should dive into, um, General Chang a bit. And, um, Larry and I were thinking, <clears throat> is it time is... to put up, uh, one of our things? Yes. I'm always happy to put up one of our things. Um, let's, uh, let's put on, I'm going to, I'm going to put on this, this image right here of General Chang and, uh, Captain James Tiberius Kirk here. Let's, let's dive into Chang. Oh, I meant a like bit. the mission briefing, our, our, our briefing. Oh, that? Okay. Yeah. That's we can it. do that. Cause yeah, I always like uh... fooling. Hi, everybody. I always like fooling everybody with us for the first time. Like, do these guys just like ramble for two hours? What do they do? <laughs> well, actually, we, every episode, a little, a little madness to the method. I mean, the other way every, around. Every life support episode, we have to begin with, uh, completely gushing about our love for Star Trek, apparently. <laughs> Um, we were, we were talking about, okay, what, what's a theme with General Chang, a mental health theme that, as we do on the show, is relevant to our current times and can help us to boldly mm -hmm. go in some way. And this image, um, this image is really the one that, um, yeah. that it's, sticks out to me of yeah. Chang and Kirk. Because the, the, the story as it relates to right now, is this story of identity and who you are and what you do because of your identity. And I know I'm, I'm throwing a lot here, but there are many times in when these two are, are facing off that, and, and even actually before, um, let me see the, the, well, it's a um, thread to everybody for a certain extent. And I just yes. to pile on what you just said, we're talking about how this is a corollary. It's a metaphor for the end of the Cold War, the wall coming down in Chernobyl, like literally, not well, <laughs> figuratively, if it's on a lodge, if it's a metaphor, but it's actually like, oh, Praxis explodes, Chernobyl explodes, and it sends that, that political entity into a spiral. Yeah. Um, and the rest of the world has to come, you know, the rest of the whatever has to come and help them, and will they accept the help and all of that? And how secretive are they about it? Uh, so that's the head, the hand, but like you say, the meta to this, which makes it applicable to any time, is yeah. this idea of identity. And are we, how do, we all have an identity, but are we prison, I, like, you know, are we prisoners to it? How does it get yes. in our way? How, how does it give us a platform for strength and how does it weaken us and, and, Absolutely. Uh, doom us Absolutely. to failure? Yeah. If you look at it from a Star Trek perspective, Praxis has been overmined. Um, it's, it's exploded. Um, Kronos only has, uh, 50 years of life ahead of it without any outside intervention. The Klingons can't afford the war anymore, the, the hostility. So we're going to negotiate a peace. Similarly, the USSR, I mean, Chernobyl happened. Chernobyl's not what brought down the USSR. There's a lot of things that are happening there, but the USSR was, um, uh, was crumbling. Um, the Cold War was over. And so what happens now when Americans and Russians have been in this Cold War with each other for decades? And what happens when, yeah, when Starfleet, which 
the version of Starfleet that Kirk has has most been a part of has been a little bit more militarized than the Starfleet that Picard is a part of. And what happens when um, when hostilities with the Klingons end? Um, Chang talks a lot about. Um, there's so many great quotes. I I, um, I took note of um, uh, oh, last night. Cairo's um, posted one here at the beginning. In space, all warriors are cold warriors. All warriors are cold warriors, uh, which is a nice little nod to the Cold War there as well. Um, but um, he talks a lot of uh, Chang in his uh, in that dinner scene. Uh, let me put that image up right over here. Um, he's sort of, he's sitting right next to Kirk. Um, we've got, uh, <clears throat> Gorkon on one side. Um, and, and this is just beautiful staging, Larry. Um, mm-hmm. on one side you have, um, uh, Chancellor Gorkon and Spock, who have been negotiating peace. Um, and on the other side you have Kirk and Chang. These two warriors who've been, at each other's throats. You know, when Kirk first sees the um, the Klingon battlecruiser, he says, I've never been this close. Um, <laughs> um, can can they step out of their Actually, role? Actually, he had, but that's okay. I know, I know. I was, I was thinking that too. I'm like, really, Kirk? Uh, okay. Um, he, I mean, they are kind of like right under the belly. Of, yeah, uh, well, the ships yeah. are. I thought, yeah, if he's talking about him personally. I, I just wanted to sit down at dinner and look around and go, nobody get a hot hand and shoot a Klingon that jerks, okay? I just <laughs> go back to Day of the Dove there. Yes. You know, what, what Chang says, from one warrior to another, would you be willing to give up Starfleet? And before Kirk can answer, Spock interrupts and goes, <clears throat> I believe what the captain means. And then Kirk is like, let me talk for myself, dude. What are you doing here? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But this fear that the Klingons have that this peace is going to lead to the annihilation of our culture. So what's happening here is given this, these galactic changes that are, uh, that are afoot, um, the Klingon. Oh, oh, I got that line. The culture line. It it totally resonates with uh, Takuvma at the beginning of Discovery, when it's all about the culture of Klingons and not, yes. you know, yes. It, which that uh, would be that would be thirty years later, twenty thirty years later from the events of Discovery, but still the the there's, pilot. There's a happen. lot. There's a lot of moments where it connects with canon. Uh, the Discovery moment is one. Um, I think it also connects with the augment storyline in uh, Star Trek Enterprise and what is this going to mean to their culture um, to have this uh, this retrovirus that kind of more humanizes them. Um, by the way, I think I love the leading theory that so Christopher Plummer was a huge Star Trek fan. He didn't take much convincing to step into this role, but he did say, I don't want to wear all that makeup. I think it looks right. funky. Right. Right. I think he's a descendant of an uh, someone of a Klingon that was affected by the retrovirus. Yeah. Um, yep, yep. Which is why he has <clears throat> all of that. Um, he's such a light touch and why he's so adept at uh, Shakespeare. Yeah, probably a Shakespeare. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> but um the culture moment, um, it, it's, it's a big one. And this is what happened. I'm getting a, you were K3ing a lot. I'm getting into the counselor's log a little bit. Um, when our group identities are threatened, they become more active. 
So when your status as a people, as a culture, as one of your identities, when it's threatened, it comes way more to the forefront, which is exactly what's happening with Chang. You know, how am I going to be a Klingon if I'm at peace with my enemy? And Kirk is struggling with this a little bit as well. What would Starfleet look like if it is demilitarized? Um, in that briefing, uh, oh, the, um, is it the Admiral? It's not Admiral Cartwright. It's, uh, who's, who's the, the CNC. Yeah. The CNC. They never give him a name. Yeah. 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 The CNC. He's a cinch um, for the role. Yeah. By the way, I'd like to remind you this meeting's classified. We get it. You've mentioned it many times. It's classified. We get it. Um, but he says, you know, our, our peacekeeping and exploration, um, missions will still be intact, but yeah, we're probably going to demilitarize. Um, and Kirk's like, what, what, what's going on? You know, so the Borg are coming in a hundred years. Okay. <laughs> then we'll make the defiant. But, um, yeah. th- there's a strong element of identity here and what happens to your identity when it's threatened. Um, mm-hmm. And that's a beautiful through line throughout this film. It was sad that the budget had to cut the exterior shot of all of those Klingon and Federation protesters storming the Kittimer Peace Accords. Oh, my god! You know, gosh. bashing in the windows. Oh, my god! And uh, threatening to come take everybody hostage and even assassinate. Oh, wait. Oh, it's a my future gosh. homage. It's a future oh homage to January 6th. What? Okay. What parallels uh, we have here? I not thought about that one. Yeah, but, yeah. I mean, I think you're um, yeah, you're both uh, scaring me, and you're correct, Larry. Um, I mean, this is one of the reasons why we wanted to talk about this today. Is um, there's a lot there's a lot of parallels to to right now, and so we see it. Um, we see it with a lot of these characters. So um, Admiral Cartwright. I'm going to put this up. Um, we find Admiral Cartwright slash <laughs> Joseph Sisko. Um, we, we see this with his character as well. Um, mm-hmm. How he, his role is, uh, is very much threatened as well. His identity is threatened and him along with uh, the Romulan ambassador, as well as general Chang, um, have really orchestrated this. Mm-hmm. What do we even want to call it? Um, conspiracy? A, conspiracy. There we go. <laughs> does, that, does that work? Okay. Yeah. Well, um, on, on the Klingons, yeah. And then uh, Colonel West, who had nothing to do with the Wild Wild West. Um, slash Odo. <laughs> slash Odo, yeah. <laughs> uh, which was a little, you know, talk about your difference between your theatrical, which wasn't, and your director's cut, which was... Uh, you know whether you're going to when you're whether you're going to unveil uh, pre Odo <laughs> Rene Bergeois's character is. I mean, they're the 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 budget the cheap budget parts of this movie when they're having the briefing and he's flipping over paper charts. <laughs> right, right. It's like 1991, and I'm kind of cringing. Like, really, really, like paper, <laughs> really. I mean, the charts are awesome and neat and very nerdy detail. And Mike. You know, this was like his third movie, and he'd had two years of next gen, so he was nerding out on ships and planet names and in jokes and stuff. But yeah, it's like really okay. And Scotty sits down to a booklet of blueprints that are like really, or they're black prints, but they're like paper. Really? It's oh, just, when Scotty's yeah. just kind of studying, <laughs> he's he's in the lounge, just studying what looks like to be the most 
basic schematic of the Enterprise I have ever seen. Just, hey, dr- you're never. <laughs> we're never too big to take a few refresher courses. <laughs> Why is he? Why is he looking at this paper schematic? It's like less detailed, Larry, than the poster I had in my room of you know the cutout poster of the Enterprise. Um, it, it's got less details here. What is he looking at? Um, my well, it's gosh. only page one. It's like yeah, it's <laughs> it's got a coffee ring. I love how he puts his cup down. I just like, there's gonna be a ring on that paper. Yeah, Look out. I know, yeah. I know. <laughs> Maybe he's just using it as a coaster. Maybe he just really, that's, he just loves the harmonics in that room. Why, Ali? <laughs> that'd be inhuman. <laughs> Don't treat blueprints that way, man. You're, you're da- <laughs> some respect. Oh my gosh. Well, well, well done. I know uh, engineers, they love to wrinkle things. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but let's. There's there's other as other characters where identity is playing out. So we t- we talked about Cartwright. Uh, let's talk about uh, Chancellor Gorkon. And the idea uh, here again is that identity. It's like I we're all we all have an identity. We can't walk away from. It. We know we're we're, no. we're a pile of jello. But are we like a prisoner to our identity? Yes. Yes. Exactly. Yes. Are we How? are we hostage to it to where we cannot adapt and change? Because as you know, change is the nature of the universe. I believe all you're referring I to. Which one that is. I believe you're referring to what I call the undiscovered country, the future. Ah. Okay. <laughs> so let's let's talk about Chancellor Gorgon, because um, here we see a very different, um, a, a very different individual. And than... and you do know Gorkon Gorbachev, right? I knew that. I forgot that. You reminded me of it right now. You're welcome. Yes. That's, that's, that's perfect. Another reason why this movie is just. Well, thank you. I just happened to uh, have come up with it as a memory. Okay. (laughs) Oh, Larry, you're always making these, these memories. Um, so he is the leader of the Klingons. He is uh, the chancellor. Um, why? In his, it's such a, um, it's such an amazing moment that after he's been assassinated and McCoy, like, beating his chest, but everyone kind of looks at each other like, you know, my God, man, I I don't even know his anatomy, but I'm going to, I imagine there's probably a heart here. Um, Are you, are you, are you doubting the judgment and a crisis of my man McCoy here? What do you, what? what? No, Is there anybody else in Starfleet history you would rather have in that moment? Yeah. No, I, um, I completely, my hat's off to him for doing what he can in the moment. It's his only real scene aside from the prison. So, you know, give it to him, please. Yeah, I love how he appears on the bridge and he's like, are we firing on Klingons? And then he's like, hold on, Jim, let me come with you. I got nothing else to do in sickbay. Let's go on this adventure together. And then Spock's like, I'll come too. And Kirk's like, uh, I'm going to need you to get me out of this mess because I think I'm going to be headed to Ruhr Pente soon. Um, it's like, it's, it's, it's lovely in how it's done. But in his, with his last breath, Larry, he doesn't reach out to his daughter. He reach outs to Kirk. And says, don't let it end this way. Why does this man in this moment 
make one more overture to quote unquote the enemy when we have Chancellor, um, not Chancellor, uh, General Chang, who is, mm-hmm. seems to be more uh, a prisoner to his identity as a warrior. When Chancellor Gorkon Gorbachev is willing to give it all up. So what do you think's going on there? What's the difference? He's, I don't know, he's, he's sat in leadership. He's, he's, look, he got to this point. He's already gotten to this point. Well, they've got Praxis. They've got the doom staring them in the face. That's what, remember, that's the motivation here. Yeah. And I also think it's because he's sitting in the chair. He's in the center seat of his whole empire. And he's got the weight of his people on his back, even in their archaic, you know, high council. By the way, first time, uh, first time both Kronos is used, which is, it's Kronos 1. Which I don't even remember from watching the movie. I remember reading. I it love later. that. I love it's that. It's like Air Force One. Yeah. So Kronos One. That's the first time that term had been used, and the first time they intended it to be the name. Because for for years, they might say, "Oh, the Klingon homeworld, the Klingon planet, the Klingon homeworld, the Klingon planet." Right. And there's right. even a time, and Maury Hurley on Next Gen, when they were trying. One time, he says, "Oh, you're the traitors of Kling. Like the name <laughs> of the planet is Kling." <laughs> and the John Ford novels. Those Klingons. They're, yeah, the Klingoffs, Klingons. If you're on world, you're a Klingon. <laughs> Klingoff, and if you've been Klingon. banished, you're a Klingoff. Klingoff. But anyway, that's Klingon. the first, first time. First time the title Chancellor was used, also, hmm. because it's like, well, the head of the empire must be an emperor, right? And that then that threw people, and then they get back to you know next gen figures, and good old Ron Moore untangles that one. Well, we used to have an emperor, but you know, and then now the emperor was a clone, and Kalis is an emperor aside the. Ch- anyway, a lot of Klingon backstory got us in in the clunky way that I wish was still a a radio play and not a movie, but still an awful lot of like longstanding backstory. I'm sorry, I'm K threeing again. It's please, Larry, yeah. always, always, always K three. Um, the way to my heart is through a K three. So uh, please, who knew that when you shot a Klingon in no gravity, you got Pepto Bismol? That their whole body. <laughs> I was gonna make that joke. I was gonna make that. I. <laughs> I made a mental note last night. I was like, oh, there's a great Pepto-Bismol joke here. I'm sorry. Did you change the I didn't get the pink pages. Ah. Uh, okay. Oh, man. Um, yeah, I okay. think, um, uh, I think you're right, Larry. He, um, his role is not a warrior. Like, if he is yeah, the yeah. chancellor, he's, um, he comes from a family likely a noble family who has not fought the f- wars, or maybe he, maybe they have, but they are from nobility. They, um, this is how we know the, um, uh, the high council works in this way. Um, there are clans that are much more ruling class than, than, well, there are higher and, ones. And the, the S9 gets into that later on. You know, yep, Martok yep. is from a lower family and, um, um, uh, Kor is from a higher family. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And uh, Martok does not like Kor um, for for all those reasons and how he was treated. But he. Did I say um, DS9? Stick with six. Hey, if you're I did talking not mean to TOS. You under nine, I want to hey, say. Hey, hey, hey. Huh? If you're talking TOS, you're eventually going to get to DS9 because it is the most TOS of the Star Treks after <laughs> TOS. But um, his role has always been 
thinking about the empire, what's better for the empire. That's his identity, um, is really thinking about the empire first. Whereas Chang is thinking very much as, as a warrior, as someone whose day to day has been about fighting these fights. Um, and Kirk is struggling with the same thing. He's struggling with these ideas of revenge. He's struggling with these ideas of being a captain who has fought the Klingons over and over again. Um, I um, think it's that think moment when Chancellor does lean in or bring Kirk closer and says, don't let it end this way. I think something changes in Kirk in that moment. And that's when he's like, like, this is what you do with your last breath. Like, like, this is, this is much, this is bigger than me. I need to get over myself um, because there there is something um, there's a much bigger problem we have to solve. I think in, in that that moment, that overture, that last uh, reaching out from the chancellor is what changes things for Kirk. Mm. I hadn't thought of it that way, but it, yeah, it could be. And he's close enough to smell them, as Chekhov said. <laughs> And and as a deleted line, yes, one of the lines from the dinner. dinner scene, that the dinner scene was supposed to be much more. It's really interesting, and maybe this is maybe this is too much of a tangent, but the dinner scene especially was supposed to heighten some of the some of the racism that was both political, you know, culturism, and also echo even like American racism or apartheid. But some of the whole us them the identity and being tribal was supposed to hit such a fever pitch that in the interests yeah. of diplomacy and they're and they are the hosts on the you know they're not on the Klingon ship they're on the Federation ship yeah as a host that you would think you know diplomacy it, it what if there's a, a White House state dinner and and the president and the head of Russia start well it may have happened sometimes but you know it's like it's like <laughs> the kid it's at least like the kitchen oh the kitchen debate you know when Nixon and Khrushchev were going through the World Fair and they had the American kitchen there and they get into that debate about who's better Russia or the Soviet Union or America but it's all very it's very pointed but it's very civil and they're like ha ha ha, ha. well you may have better rockets but we've got better washing machines I mean mm -hmm. you know it's like <laughs> in the moment it was a little bit bizarre but they debated but it stays friendly and this this gets out beyond that but originally the scene was going to be a lot more pointed, and Nichelle, for one, did not want to use some of the token American racism lines, but in a Federation to Klingon context, because it was too close. To, it's like they couldn't be meta. It's like, well, it's a metaphor. Exactly. You're making a commentary about racism here, and uh, us and them, and tribalism, and the other. Yeah. And it was, and um, uh, Brock Peters was the same way, Admiral Cartwright. He had some lines to say, you know, hatred toward Klingons that were a lot like. A lot like that too, and he—it was like all he could do to get through his speech, his long speech, where he's saying, "Oh, you know, his his hate the Klingon speech." It's kind of echoing Kirk's darker thoughts before you know he's a conspirator, and uh, he was having trouble just as a black actor saying them because he knew the origin yeah. of the lines, even though yeah. this is, you know, anyway. Yeah, uh, it's, it's. Um, I mean, that's the dinner scene is. Um is so uncomfortable for all those reasons. I mean, guess who's coming to dinner? Like this is um there there are so many references in this uh from, like including the, the uh, apparently Spock is a descendant of Sherlock Holmes, which is my one of my favorite <laughs> moments in this in this movie. Um, I mean, we have Peter Pan references. We there's there's so much happening in this movie. But that dinner scene is um 
it's it's uh it's difficult to watch at times because of the language and because these are <laughs> these are our heroes and here is how here's how they act face to face with klingons and here's what they're mm-hmm. saying once they leave you know like oh the smell could you you know mm-hmm. like all of these it's it's quite uncomfortable um and it's so true to the time um, it's so true to what happens when identity can become weaponized in this way, in, in which it was with the Cold War, and it was with the Klingons and Americans. Mm-hmm. And in many ways, it, it is now, which I'll, I'll get into more in the... Easy in the for you to say that, Yakami. <laughs> Man, am I glad I didn't live through that era. Um, oh, you think, Okami, yeah. Oh, well. gosh. Um well, let's um, let's talk about the the Federation president as well here, Larry. We talked about Gorkon. Um, uh, yeah. The, Feder- the Federation president. What's his name? Um, he doesn't have a name here. They give him one in the books later, but he's he's just the president. Just like the yeah. president doesn't have a name in Star Trek Four. Right. One of these days. One of these days, I want a West Wing style um, Star Trek uh, Council of representatives movie i have wanted a star trek west wing series for ages you could do all the all the aliens and all the cultures and you don't have to do like you know a planet background every week you have everybody go anywhere yeah 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 i would i would love that and you could Um, have the secret underground uh rebellion out in the federation somewhere that resents (laughs) everything being headquartered on earth right 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 uh robert says his his name is fabio But what's fa- oh another K three so those that alien race that you saw as the helmsman on the Saratoga and four that they bring back there's a mini K three right there then they bring it back for this is Kurtwood Smith who's Anorax right mm-hmm. in Year of Hell on Voyager and he played a Cardassian Thrax in the in the Odo throwback mind game thing mm-hmm. uh, episode early in DS nine but he's also you know, like Red from that seventies show great actor Kurt right Smith. right but, right right yes but that species. One of the produ- one of the line producers was Mel Efros, and they named that the uh, informal nickname for that is was Efrosians, named after Mel Efros, mm. and uh, and then it stuck, and now everybody because there's nothing else, and it sounds cool, so now they're the, those are the you know it's retcon totally, but we just call them the Efrosians now, and they have they do have bad eyes that the, the president had special the, glasses. There's a scene or yeah, yes, those dark at the very end have bad eyesight, yeah. Right, right. Anyway, and that's why sorry. he was in Ten Forward. That's why. And his, his office, office is Ten, 10 Forward. Yeah, with oh the back. <laughs> Who knew the? That's for that's when uh, Guinan has sports bar night and they're watching the latest water polo games in Parisi <laughs> Squares. They just turn the artwork into a big TV and everybody takes makes bets in Ten Forward. No one yes. knew that. That was in the. It's in the ninth season of Next Gen. That was never that, that Mike McMahon has not written about yet. That I will. Well, what what I like about the president. Uh, and the Fed uh, and Starfleet here. Um, <clears throat> this movie is one of the ones that gets closer to helping us understand the distinction between Federation and Starfleet. And um, this gets very, uh, this gets wobbly throughout Star Trek. But um, Starfleet <laughs> serves the government, which is a Federation, and Starfleet is this peacekeeping armada scientific exploration branch 
which at times is more militarized and at times less militarized. But here we see a little bit of the conflict there between the military Mm -hmm. in Star Trek VI, the military aspect of Starfleet, which is seeing a major threat to what might happen if the bases are, are, are removed from the neutral zone, if, um, if starships are going to be redeployed, if, you know, would someone like Admiral Cartwright be kind of useless in this future? You know, I, I kind of want to tell them, hey, you, you all have this border with the Romulans too. It's not like you're going, like, you still got some fights left to fight. Like, <laughs> and there's the guys on the other side. You haven't met the Cardassians yet. So, yeah, you know, much I know. less the brain. I know. You know. you know, there's, there's a, the space is big. You saw how long it took the Excelsior to get from Beta Quadrant to Alpha Quadrant, uh, when Sulu's like, hmm, well, we're in Alpha Quadrant right now, uh, Captain Kirk. It's gonna take us some time to get there. Space is big! Space is big. There's a lot of, uh, uh, nefarious, uh, agents out there. But, oh, he um, was just in the hours days code. That's all he was doing. <laughs> oh! <laughs> hours, yes, yes, yes. I love that moment in Wrath of Khan. Um, this is, the, I think what, when it comes back to identity here, um, the president is really acting in his civilian role overseeing the government, which is the United Federation of Planets. Mm-hmm. And Cartwright is very much acting in his role as, uh, as what we would think of in the United States as like this joint chiefs. <laughs> Uh, council of military yep. leaders. Um, and you see some of that distinction and some of the conflict there, uh, between the, between them and between those, I, those very different identities. Yeah. yeah. Although you saw a CNC that I think of as, it's like, well, he's really over everybody because he runs the meeting. So it's like mm-hmm. he's the joint chiefs and then Cartwright is like the secretary of the, or the, you know, the active head of, just under that or something. I, you know, it's a little confusing, but anyway, there's, when we get into K3 and we talk later on, I feel like we've, I mean, the chat is, I want to say everybody, <laughs> I feel like we've looked at the chat less this today than we have ever. And we're only talking about one movie, which is part of the problem. We've got such a great focus for two hours, <laughs> but can I say um, real quick, some yeah, of the things we've please, said real fast, please, um, please, please. So I want to say hi to Josh ball. I know you've been with us, but we were showing the Scotty image. And I almost said this at the time. Uh, the guy to his, to his left was um, Max Cervantes. Josh says, I spy my pal, Max Cervantes, who was an extra for a while in Next Gen, but worked in the prop industry, still does, uh, works in the prop industry of fabricating. But he had two or three years of being an extra on Next Generation, and you see him a lot. But he's I'm, in I'm putting up the image right now. He's um, to the screen left of Scotty in the, in, with a red I'm trying baller. to – I think it's – I think that's it. he's so much younger than he looks now but i think that's because the other side's a woman and it's the darker the blacker haired person yeah the yeah yeah the um he, he's an individual who's going like this <laughs> i think so which would be the fanboy thing to do because he was a fan also as well as yeah you know dream oh, job I would, I would be doing the same thing yeah, I'd yeah. be doing the same thing. <laughs> uh, anyway, so I just wanted to say that we're we're uh, I'm trying to look for folks and be and catch up because the the chat's just gone, gone, gone. Well, while um, you're catching up, um, Larry, I'm just gonna cycle through some of the other folks we want to talk about here when it comes to identity. Um, yeah. Another way in which um, this group identity plays out and role um, is with Sulu. Is 
Captain Sulu. Um, mm-hmm. There's there's um, a great moment where um, uh, Chris Slater, right, um, uh, knocks on the door and says, "Hey, Captain." Um, Starfleet's asking us, like, if we know anything about where the Enterprise is, and and Sulu's like, tell them we don't know anything. <laughs> and then he's like, uh, Captain, he's like, you got a hearing problem, sir? Uh, you know, like, um, Sulu is, is loyal to Captain Kirk and the mm-hmm. crew right there. And, um, to the point where he is, not giving Starfleet the information they're requesting about the location of Enterprise. Um, he also assists the Enterprise in giving the location of Praxis and then, um, literally comes to the aid of the Enterprise. Uh, you know, uh, we'll, uh, f- go faster. We'll fly you apart. Then fly her apart. Um, then fly her apart. <laughs> then fly her apart then. Yeah. So many great moments, but. Why is Sulu so loyal and willing to do all of these things? Well, I think get everyone's this... name because it addressed because we're going to reshoot this scene in about eight years. Yeah, <laughs> actually, less than that. Yeah. Well, from their perspective, they were going to reshoot that scene a few hours ago. Um, so what's <laughs> what's what's so lovely about this is it's another example of of identity playing out and Sulu's loyalty to Captain Kirk, um, to Mr. Spock, to the crew of the Enterprise and, um, how much he's w- willing to, to sacrifice and, and, and sort of break the rules because his identity as, uh, as, as it relates to Kirk and crew is, is, is worth so much more. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> you were going to make some points while I was looking at chat and looking some things up. So I... <laughs> Hello? I can make some more points. Oh. Um, who else do I want to talk about? Um, you know, we haven't talked about uh, Valeris well, you've yet. Got I think... Spock, you've got Valeris. You've got... Yeah. yeah. Valeris is the other big one besides kind of the counterpoint to Chang, really, isn't it? Wouldn't you say? Yeah. Ish? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so... There's there's a lot of great moments between Valeris and, and Spock that in many ways feel a lot like Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. I think you'll probably get into this a little bit later, uh, Larry. But um, the conversations between the two of them, Spock in this mentor role and Valeris as this new officer role, you know, like, hey, we're not supposed to turn on our impulse engines and space dock and Spock's like, mm-hmm, 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 mm-hmm. Captain wants to go impulse. Let him go impulse in space dock. Yeah. Um, but he is taking on this mental role where, where he's saying, look, logic is the beginning of wisdom, not the end. So uh, one question I have for you, Larry, is why? Why does Valeris sign on for this conspiracy why why is she why does she see this as the logical path forward well she's she it's she's in a way this is a great statement of not humanity what do we go how do we go uh 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 bipedal <laughs> lifeformity <laughs> i don't know what do we say here to transcend the homo sapiens only club yeah 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 <laughs> um <laughs> 
No, I'm trying to transcend that. Here's the, here's the great unifying thing about humans and Klingons, or the Federation species and Klingons, is they can all be equally, um, you know, evil and corrupt. Look, we can all be united in our hatred of each other. I mean, that's basically what this is. It's like yeah, we're we, more comfortable we, in our yeah. We hadn't seen Star Trek Enterprise yet. We didn't realize how uh, how bad Vulcans can be to other people. Um, well, that's growth. That's growth, which is what the point is. It's like wherever you are in your development, hundred years from you know, and then hundred years from later, you got Klingons and humans working together until Gowron's messing it up. But um, but no, I mean, you you said well, how can Valeris be this way? And she was she was another one of Spock's you know proteges, but. Um, but she's she's on the young end. She hasn't spent decades at it like Chang, you know, or Colonel West or or Cartwright. She's young and knows no other thing, you know, no other path in her life. And yeah. so she's terrified as a young person to think, which is weird because you usually think younger people are more adept and more flexible and they're more, prog- you know, progressive liberal. When you, you only get old and set in your ways when you've had a few decades to be set in your ways. And here she is being young. But it's the same mindset so it's a real blow for diversity that young people can be just as <laughs> stuck in their ways and you know even for the di- but you're i mean talk about playing out the headlines you're seeing there were a lot of young people storming the capitol yeah you know on january 6th it wasn't just everybody over 50 or over 40 there were there were young people there too so the idea and that she's a vulcan you know how can she be that way that's not necessarily a, a factor so it's yeah, a great blow for diversity. <laughs> well, it's um, I think it does highlight. Um, you bring a good, a great perspective here about age. That all the other conspirators really are. Um, um, if you look at if you look at it from a lens of motivation and uh, motivated reasoning, which is really about how your your thoughts and your beliefs kind of follow. Um, they follow the the motivations and reinforcement and where in um, like how it might benefit you um, to have these different beliefs. We get how it might benefit Chang or Cartwright. Um, they've been serving these roles for a long time, but Valeris is so young and um, can get um, young people, especially those who might feel more isolated and alone are really vulnerable to ideology and are really vulnerable to um, to identities that might be very um, very dangerous groups and can get because they haven't into... had time to to thicken their own bark I mean I don't yeah, know yeah how... I mean it's it's we, we all want connection to people to connection to meaning connection to um, important ideals and sometimes the the people who are most vulnerable to getting connected to very dangerous groups are the ones who are most isolated and alone so maybe somewhere along the way uh valeris um uh might have had good intentions but got drawn into uh, some of the wrong ideology the wrong perspective of starfleet um yeah um and then, is there anything you wanted to say about um, uh, the Chancellor's daughter? Um, I'm blanking on her name. Um, oh, uh, Ajit Burr. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. 
so she becomes the the new uh, Klingon chancellor. The chancellor, yeah. which adds a whole wrinkle. As as next gen developed, and they say women are never on the council. It's like one of those things about there were never any women in politics unless their their husband was the governor or the senator, and let people let the wife fill out the term, kind of a thing. Like you know, because she's not there very long. And Laurel, now we've got Laurel as head of the empire, right before Kirk's years. And then there's another woman back later, but then a hundred years later, Gowron and, and the Klingons at that time are saying there aren't women on the council. I mean, it's just more texture. People that want to get all balled up about that, and that's where my hashtag texture not trivia comes in. But no, she's she's of the same she same DNA as her dad, which is nice for consistency. That she's not going to be, you know, not turned against her father's wishes, which makes in a sense and kind of a no no. <laughs> You know, in a noble kind of way, that makes sense that if she was his, if he reared her with that kind of a mindset, that he, you know, to be open to change, even while, you know, trust but verify. Um, right, right. Yeah, right. I mean, we go up and down, the, you know, you go up and down the, go up and down the list and not all of the, you know, even Gorkhan's party and the uh, other generals and some of them that had speaking lines. Some some are with not all of them are with Chang at the end. It's always it's there's like all that frantic at the Kittimer conference and the frantic uh, chaos that happens after the assassination attempt and Kirk, you know, Kirk's big hero moment and he saves the president. Um, and then everybody kind of like the waters kind of part and you see who's on who, who's over on, you know, and 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 Cartwright is like, oh, oh, arrest these evil people. And they're like, no, no, no. No, no, no. We have, <laughs> we have our names. Give us the names. It's like a little McCarthy. That which is a problematic scene. The, the whole inter- yeah. interrogation, yeah. tortures, whatever you want to call it, torture, or you want to call it a mind rape, or whatever you want to call it. It's an uncomfortable scene, and maybe it's supposed to, but it is. But the fact that they go in having names on a list, so that he can't pull that innocent routine, you know, down at the conference. But you notice there's like Klingons that are getting that are being drawn down on. And there are Klingons uh, in uniform, some of them. And and good old Colonel Worf, thank goodness, was not a bad yes. Klingon. He was on the good yes. side. Yeah. So, you know, there's something. Um, uh, yeah. So uh, it always makes me wonder if that's if that's his dad's father or his mother's father. Colonel anyway. Worf? Colonel Worf? Uh, Colonel Worf, yeah. yeah. Um, Is yeah, it Moe's father? We don't know. Father? Or is it his mother's father, whose name we don't know? I think. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Lots of we letters know. here. All we know is he oh. looks and sounds a lot like Michael Dorn. It's uh. funny how that <laughs> skips a generation and goes that way. But yeah, but this whole thing about being trapped by your identity rather than being served, by, you know, strengthened by it or or trapped by it. It's a straitjacket yeah. you can't get out of. Yeah. Yeah. Or your, um, your perception. You know, Val- Valeris says. Um, You've betrayed Starfleet, and um, and later, um, towards the end, um, or not towards the end, somewhere in the middle, um, uh, Kirk says to Spock, you know, we're both extremists. Um, Kirk for rushing in, and Spock's arrogance to logic, and Spock says, is it possible we've grown so old and inflexible that we've outlived our usefulness? But they, they've also... The two of them um, see the problem in being so um, so inflexible, and whether it's with the dying chancellor's last wish, you know, don't let it end this way, or if it's by 
realizing that their time is coming to an end. The Enterprise is to stand down. The Excelsior is the future. You know, to boldly go where no man, where no yeah. one has gone before. Um, they realize that they, they have, they have served what Starfleet stands for. And right. what Starfleet can stand for can change too. That's, that's a little bit of what I hear at the very end when Kirk says, where no man, where no one has gone before. A recognition that, um, Starfleet is changing and, um, and he is going to step down and, and let the next generation, no pun intended, take the lead here. Um, yeah. Which, um, Valeris does not. Um, uh, the new <laughs> chancellor does. And, um, so yeah, um, with that, Larry, anything else you want to say before we go into the counselor's law? No, here? I just, we have, I just feel like we've kind of blathered more than usual today. <laughs> and I just want to, I just, it's 20 after 11, so I'm just, um, or we're an hour and 20 in, so maybe we should move along. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's, uh, let's do that. So, uh, let's open up the, uh, counselor's log. This is the part of the show where I do a little, a little bit of a deeper dive into some of the psychology that, that we've been, um, talking about here. And I was looking through my notes, Larry, the last time we sort of talked about identity in this way, I think was, um, episode 10 of Life Support Live. Very long time ago. I don't know. Wait, you know the numbers and the titles of the episodes? Hey, thanks to, wow, uh, you're so thank man. Okay, <laughs> I'm I'm a pretty big fan of the show. I I always tune in every week. Um, Saturday, you like I'm always here. Okay. <laughs> but um, so here some of this I, some of this I've talked about before, but it's it's been a while too. You know, group identity affects us all. Um, sometimes people talk about um, um, identity politics, but everything in politics is identity politics. It's all about group identity. And uh, one of the things I mentioned before on the show is we like the groups we belong to, even when psychologists randomly assign people to different groups. And even when they tell people, hey, I'm randomly putting you in these groups, the dynamics that unfold is people like the group they're put in, and they tend to dislike other people's groups. And they make choices and actions that benefit their group and are not so good for the other group. So this stuff gets gets set up very quickly. We prefer our own groups. And one of the more dangerous things that happens is when um, mega identities are formed. And what a mega identity is, is when different identities are layered on top of each other so that if you're in one, it also means you're in all these other sort of things, which is very much the situation we have in America right now, where if you're a Democrat, you're also likely uh, living in an urban area. It also means you probably live near... Um, a Trader Joe's or a Whole Foods. If you're a Republican, you're more likely to be in a more rural state. You're also more likely to live near um, a Cracker Barrel and, and different, like we eat different food. A Waffle we, House. Uh, we, yeah, we, we watch different media and all of these things sort of get <laughs> layered on top of each other. And um, if there isn't inter any intermingling of the groups, if you, uh, if it, 
it, it used to be possible that there were more moderate Democrats and more moderate Republicans um, who lived somewhat near each other. But as the decades have gone on, these, these identities have gotten farther away from each other and they've become layered on each other. And that's getting back to Klingons and the Federation. Um, that's absolutely the situation we have there. Klingons are warriors. They live in their own space. They have very specific cultural beliefs. Starfleet are, they have their own thing. They're, there's no real intermingling between them. There is a next generation mm-hmm. and then especially in Deep Space Nine, we see that, but not here. That's part of the reason why this is so, so difficult. And, um, what we know that happens about group identities is that they're often like a cloaked ship. You're not really thinking about your identity much. It's there. It's in the background. But the moment your identity is threatened, it comes to the forefront. Um, the moment someone fires upon you, then it's like every aspect of your identity is completely engaged. So the, the most, um, we saw this with the 2016 election in the United States. Um, as identities started to get threatened, those identities started to get activated. Um, a quote that um, I really like is from Ezra Klein's book, Why We're Polarized, which basically says, um, what he says is, the simplest way to activate someone's identity is to threaten it, to tell them that they don't, they, that they don't deserve what they have, to make them consider that it might be taken away. The experience of losing status and being told your loss of status is part of society's march to justice is in itself radicalizing. And, uh, we see that with Kirk and, um, and Chang, when Chang says from one warrior to another, would you be willing to give up Starfleet? Um, we see this with the themes of Federation and Klingon, Starfleet versus Federation. Um, we see this with, with Kirk, um, and his identity as a father and an officer. And both of those things have been threatened by, um, by the Klingons. Um, we see this in, in so many ways. And, and Larry, this relates to, uh, fandom as well. Um, you know, tomorrow is a Super Bowl in the yes. United States. Um, yep. and Kansas City Chiefs and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, like, we care so much about our, our identity to a team. And uh, the moment someone says, ah, oh, the 49ers, they kind of, they're a horrible team. I, for some reason, get very defensive. I'm like, what are you <laughs> talking about? The 49, you know, blah, 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 blah. We won all these games in the 80s and 90s. Um, yeah. You know, um, this stuff gets very easily activated when our when our identity is threatened. Trekkie versus Star Wars fan, um, TOS versus TNG, um, all this sort of stuff. So um, this is what what's at play. A lot of this stuff is is cloaked, is kind of in the background until you feel it's threatened, and then all logic goes out the door. And you will do things that might not make any sense and they might be emotional and you'll do whatever you can to protect your identity. And I'll talk about what to, how to deal with that in a moment. But before that, I think it's time for a That was a very succinct counselor's log for such a far reaching (laughs) subject. Yes. Yeah. Well, it's, uh, we spent so much time, uh, yapping away. Um, uh, but Larry, now it's time for you to yap. I'd love to hear about what you got, uh, okay. for our K3 factor today. And, well, you have to remember that I'm, I'm not only blind to a split screen, I'm blind to any of the graphics and images you put up. So I'm just going to, right. So if you, if you've got the order there, I got the order. I, think I have, 
I have the actresses first, right? So here's the thing. I was trying to apply this idea of identity that we wear as armor, you know, and sometimes armor is protective and saves our life. But sometimes armor, just ask any medieval knight, sometimes it can be inhibiting too, you know? <laughs> if you if you want to look at the Gorn, the famous Gorn fight, it's like if that Gorn <laughs> is so protected by his skin, he's like moving. He, he looks like a knight, right? He's like moving so slow and... Kirk just has to be should have just been Indiana Jones and pulled out his pistols and shot the guy. Um, but it's I was trying to apply this concept of identity being both our friend and our enemy for our own sake uh, to a couple of aspects of the deep dive here on on uh, search for Spock. Just keep it to this movie, Star Trek. And by the way, if you are new to us this week, K3 is named for the K3 circuit, the K3 factor that's on McCoy's biobed. It's the only Reference to mental health. It's a brain, a brain factor that he cites for for mental health for for brain neurology and brain health. So this is my time to deep dive something the way Ali deep dives the mental health side of our geek out here. Um, but I try to keep it with the theme and and looking at identity. Yes, identity. Um, it's really interesting how six played. I was rereading some from from Nick's book last night, but it's really interesting how. Um, the whole thing of Valeris as a character. Originally, Nick Meyer's take here was that they were they were originally going to bring back Savick because what better what what more surprise reveal would there be than to have this character that you've known for a while uh, be the one who turns out to be a traitor and a conspirator? And how could that be? And a protege yeah. of Spock, and she betrays. Spock as much as she betrays the Federation, which is what Valeris winds up doing. It's the same character function in the story, but how much more weight would it have for Star Trek fans? And again, we're talking movie era, so it's not like she was around for seven seasons and 140 gajillion episodes. It's it's only th you know three or four movies. Uh, but the fact that they went to that's why I have so you've got this image up, right? Yep. yep. So they approach Kirstie L about being this, but right at this point, she's at her high point on Cheers, and she's about to do Look Who's Talking movies, and she is in no mood to go back, and she was a huge fan. She was a huge nerd out. She put the ears on and knew all of her Vulcan stuff because she was a little nerd girl back in Wichita, and this was her first role, but now she's beyond this. Her identity as an actress and as a, you know, a leading series actress who's about to do features – to me, it struck me that her her identity, you know, and then she's going to price her structure where she's out of their budget, and she won't come down. There's no sentimentality going on here. She's looking out for her career as a young actress, and and her identity is such that she thinks this would be a bad career move. So what, okay, what about fine. Rob was Robin Curtis ever in the Robin equation? Curtis? Sadly, was never in the which she talks about now being hurt by. Like they never mm -hmm. called her to play Savick in that situation. Once yeah. this all, you know, t uh, the statute of limitations was up 10, 20 years later, and this all got talked about publicly. Yeah. So they're not doing Savick. And then on top of that, they're going to recast. They didn't really want to recast it for a third time, which means like, yeah, they didn't even think <laughs> that about would be Curtis, That would be bad. I'm... Who was the last one to play the role, which is yeah. sad. I mean, this, what are, this is not Spider-Man. We don't recast the role three times. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> But then on top of that, Gene was fading by this time. This is like the year before he died. Yeah. Uh, he saw them, he saw a cut of the movie two days before he had his, his fatal stroke and wow. told him he loved it. And then he went home and he had Leonard Majorly start writing up all his 
all of he was very upset by some of the extreme racism comments even though that was the point that it was meant to be racist to get you mad and point up the drama so, so that the anti-racism side could prevail the open-minded side of reaching out and and, and detente you know could win out so basically between gene's comments about he did not want savic a beloved character to be poisoned this way as a reveal which nick meyer thought was hysterical because he created savic <laughs> not gene but between not wanting it to be savic and not being able to find anyone to play it they reached out to kim cattrall who actually they had reached out to early among other actresses but when she thought it was going to be Savick, she did not want to be the third actress to play Savick. But once they decided for it not to be Savick, then she said, okay. So it's like her identity armor here was her pride. I don't know. Is there a link between identity and pride here? Her pride yeah. about it, her identity was, I'm not an actress that comes into a role for the third character to play that role. Like it's the eighth season of a bad sitcom or something. Right, it's fading, right. whatever. Or somebody got... You know, the second person got fired for ethics problems, and and now I'm going to come in and take it home for the last season or something. So her her ethos was not to play Savic, but if it's a new character, okay, I'll do that. And came in and made her, and then you know, and took it over. And and Valeris, little K three, Eris was the Greek uh, goddess of chaos. Ah. And then she came up with Val, even though Val is not you know to bring to Paul to whatever. Um. You know, Vulcan names suddenly got diversified. Anyway, so that's that. I know I've lingered long on this slide, but that's a uh, to me that was like thinking of some of the weird little quirks of this movie and its story, and that's one of them that we had identity, you know, and apparently Robin Curtis had no identity with the casting people, which is sad. But then the other slide. Um, well, and, and before you get to yeah. the second one, um, a lot of love for Robin Curtis as Savick from, uh, from Jason, from Charlotte, from Scott, from Linda. Um, yeah. Robin's performance as Savick really adds, adds a lot of layers to it in Star Trek three. So it is, it's really is too bad, um, that she wasn't invited and in, to bring back the character. And then I'll spend less time on this one, I promise. But another aspect here that you can even look at that, and or you tell me, yeah. it's what struck me as I was redoing some freshening up reading. And I, I had not been totally aware of this, but um, they reached out to – it's kind of like this returning curve of here's Nick Meyer. And they knew it was going to be the last original series movie. They've got Nick Meyer doing it, right, you know, writing and directing um, to one degree on the front end and then directing. Uh, he reaches out to, oh, look what, you know, the Rathacon was just such magic, right? They really captured the lightning on that. So he reaches out to James Horner to do the score. And James Horner says, well, who's done much more since then in six years, in well, 10 years, nearly nine years. And James Horner says, well, you know, my career has moved past Star Trek. Ugh. So his identity was that Star Trek was this, you know, fading lower franchise here, and I don't do, you know, I don't do Roman numeral sequel movies, <laughs> kind of a thing. So you want to call Anymore. it snobbery, even though you he did three. Yeah, yes, yes, yeah. Well, he'd moved on. He his career yeah. has. So I thought, well, there's a case where you know it's not good or bad; it's just what it is. And now we we can sit here and snort at that, or we can go, well, okay. But there's a case of identity. Then then they reached out to Jerry Goldsmith. <laughs> 
who you know obviously wrote more themes and wrote three of the four next gen themes, the last three, and had done uh, the motion picture, which recycled for the TNG theme. Um, but at this point, he said he I, he looked at he and he had done Star Trek Five. And at this point, he apparently looked at the Star Trek V lousy box office and said, no, I don't want to pile onto that. So then again, here's his identity. His identity is I'm a leading Hollywood composer, and yeah. do I really want to get mixed up with this? Yeah. So then they reached out to a young composer named Cliff Eidelman, who did yeah. the score and did a wonderful job. And yeah, that it's nice and haunting. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. And and so that boost, I mean, yeah, he had one, he had enough of a feather in his cap to enough of a resume to get on the radar. But then, but then he went on and had you know, and not, maybe not he no Jerry Goldsmith or John Williams or James Horner, but he is very maybe probably his best score, if not one of his best for six. So I, it's another case of where there was negotiation, there was, but people all felt like they're looking at their own identity, their vis a vis their career or where they are in life. I don't know, am I am interpreting this right here? Yeah. But it's just the way yeah, yeah. that our identity affects our decision making, right? Even if it's Absolutely. not like this head-to-head relationship thing it's it's taking into account how we and then last but certainly not least the last one there is of nick meyer himself yeah and thinking it as opposed to kirstie alley as opposed to those earlier composers and you know can't fault them for those decisions that's just to me that's like day-to-day your identity to yourself is affecting the choices you make on the other hand here's nick meyer on star trek 2 who came in captain i have no ego to bruise he took five different bad scripts, but pulled the fir- the best parts of all the five when they're running out of time. Harv Bennett, for the first time, has been tasked to save this franchise and make a better, a leaner, meaner, better movie than the bloated motion picture, which wasn't all Gene's fault. It had too many fingers in the pie. And they do. But here's, here's, uh, here's Nick Meyer, who's written and done a movie, 7% Solution, right? And time after time. And he comes in. He has no ego to bruise. He's like, fine. I don't care about the writing credit. If it's all wrapped up in Writers Guild, blah, 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 and we need to give the credit over here, I'll just direct it. He had, you know, he was flexible enough with his identity where that was not a deal breaker. He didn't get up and take his toys and leave the room. And he worked on other projects. He comes down to six, and it's between the studio being in chaos and turning over three sets of leadership while he's doing this. He's meeting with – they reach out to him. Leonard reaches out to him. They're going to make Leonard an executive producer, and he pulls him in. They hash out the story. Basically, Leonard says, what about Chernobyl and the thing with the Soviets right now? And and he totally like just spits this out. They're walking on the beach at Leonard's vacation house in Provincetown, Massachusetts, and they come up with the basic story like walking up and down the beach in one afternoon and goes home. And somewhere along the way in all the chaos of people and allies and writers who were paid to write a script by the studio and hadn't yet. And they bring in these two junior writers who not only waste time, but they uh, don't make a great script. And then it goes back to what Leonard and and I should say Adam, what Leonard and Nick wanted to do in the first place. All this is to say that the reason there's 90,000 names on this script is there was there, it went to arbitration and at one point, Leonard and Nick were crossways because Leonard thought Nick was grabbing too much control. They found out that some of these were studio machinations where they hadn't told each other what was going on. The top dogs had not told Leonard or Nick what was going on. Hmm. And they survived, and their friendship survived all that. They're good, 
But at the time, they were racing to get this movie done, and it was more friction than they needed. But my point here is that Nick Meyer's identity was such that as opposed to some of these people, and it gets back to who are the conspirators in six and who are the ones who can roll with the times. Can you roll? Is your identity such that you can, you can digest that and roll with it? I just, I go back to, I have no ego to bruise. Right. Such such a great line. Um, But here's a case for all these different people. I've just mentioned their identity affected their decisions. And in Nick Myers case, his identity allowed his ego to flourish in a way that he was a collaborator. He didn't get hung up on all of that. He stuck up for his budget. He stuck up for other things when he needed to. But in a big picture, he didn't let any one thing blow up his own opportunities, much less jeopardize a project. Now, did I did I interpret your... Absolutely, you did. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I mean, you mentioned okay. pride, and and pride is that thing is when your when your pride is injured, a lot of your identities can come can come up, and you mm-hmm. you can act in ways that might not be very logical at all. They might be very emotional, and uh, I think these examples that you brought up are are good ones. Um, anyway, I, I I wondered. Um, did I, I knew, surprise you with anything? Did you learn anything today? Uh, Savik, I knew. Um, the composer part is, I did not know, um, James Horner was invited back. I also didn't know, uh, Jerry Goldsmith was invited back for Star Trek VI. I always wondered why Star Trek VI composer was, um, was someone new. Um, I thought maybe it's because they wanted a different vibe for it, but this, this makes a lot of sense. Um, so it was like either much. use the next gen engineering set or get a completely different composer. Oh, wait, we have to do both. <laughs> yeah. Uh, thank you, Larry, for, uh, for that K3. And then I've got a very short away mission, um, for all of us today. So this is, um. Stop having identity! Oh, no, wait. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, yeah, right. There's this, um, there's this essay that really, um, made its rounds a lot, um, by folks like, like Ezra Klein, um, this essay from Paul Graham, um, who's a Silicon Valley person. The essay is called Keep Your Identity Small. And the, the essay is, it's all about, um, the advantages to keeping a small identity, to, um, not latching on to some of these things. Um, so the example here would be to, instead of considering yourself a Trekkie, <laughs> to consider yourself someone who enjoys Star Trek shows and movies. I think that's very hard to do. I think it's, it's, uh, uh, it's very hard to give you any kind of sound advice here because in some ways, latching onto an identity is the quickest way to change your behavior. There's a lot of research that's shown if you're trying to stop smoking, if your identity becomes, I'm a non-smoker, it's easier to stop smoking. Um, if you, if you start to hang out with people who don't smoke, if you think of yourself as a non-smoker, um, Similar to people who don't want to drink, if you identify as someone who doesn't drink, it's easier to not drink. So identity can also be a force for good, especially when you're trying to create healthier habits and things like that. And there's a lot of wonderful fandom that comes along with that identity of being some like a Trekkie. I talked about that in the very beginning. It also can take nefarious roles. Um, and, and we can, we've got into that. I think episode three or four about Life Support Live was about some of the darker sides of fandom. So keeping your identity small, I think is, is, it's a noble idea, but I think it's an extremely difficult idea. So the other direction I wanted to take this away mission is more about, um, that moment 
where uh, Chancellor Gorkon brings in Kirk and says, don't let it end this way. So there's some brand new research out. Um, I believe the lead author was Emily um, Emily Cuban. I'll post the link in our Facebook book group later to this article if anyone's interested but what these psychologists did is they reviewed a lot of research that's out there about cutting through political identities and what seems to be the best way to do that and what they found is we're in this post-facts era and logic and facts and information it's not enough larry it's not enough to um to cut through identity issues um, if you're trying to have a conversation across identities, facts are suspect now. But what can cut through these strong identities seems to be personal storytelling that's related to the issue at hand and perhaps involves some story of personal threat. That when we hear stories from people across these identities that that we have and their personal experiences and then someone might tell a story about how their life was in danger and this is why this issue has become so important to me those stories resonate with people and it's not enough to change someone's mind but it is enough for you to create respect for the other person and that can open the doorway to understanding and, th- and then later negotiation and coming together. Facts are very important for policy, but they're not really important for respect. This personal storytelling that emphasizes some type of threat seems to be more important. So, for example, people whose lives have been impacted by school shootings, losing someone that they love, losing a child, this has has made them passionate about issues related to gun safety, gun control. Similarly, coal miners who've been working in a in a town where their families have been coal miners for generations, and this is the mm. only economic income in that town. Um, this is why they have become so passionate about expanding coal mining. It's because it's it's the only source of livelihood for that community. These t- this type of storytelling that is is linked to experience and experiences of, of threat and safety. This seems to be one way to cut through identity. So my away mission for you all, and I don't recommend doing this unless it's important to you. I don't recommend having conversations across strong identities unless it's with someone with whom it's very important for you to maintain a relationship and you're, you're willing to do the tough work because this is tough work. But if you are in that situation, tell a story about why this issue is important to you. Tell a story about why it's impacted your life, um, why it's important to your sense of safety and well-being. Or ask the other person, why do you think this issue is so important to me? Framing conversations in this way can help us to cut through some of the um, some of the identity mess, and I think it's exactly what happens when Counselor Gorkon brings in Kirk and says, "Don't let it end this way." Um, these are ways we can cut through it, Larry. Facts, mm-hmm. information, no, not anymore. Um, but storytelling, personal storytelling, yeah, this this can um, even in an era where facts are suspect, people listen to your personal story. Um, and believe your personal story much more than facts. 
That's my away mission. Did I surprise you Say, in yes. any way? Sorry? Did I surprise you in any way? Uh, no, no. It's just a real <laughs> snooze fest. Every time I sit down here, it's just nothing ever surprising. No, it's it's hard. You have to find... To me, that thing about how do you cross a divide with someone and facts fail you? Yeah. Sometimes I think I... the Just generically, the way I try to do that is like... I for lack of a better term, come in from a third angle because I think part of the divide is based on not only your idea, your identity of yourself, but your identity for the person you're facing off against. And this right. idea that somehow you've, you've not only been given a script for yourself, but you've been given a script for the other person. And if I can find a way to disrupt that expectation and go like, what, what? And come in from a third angle, you know? And yeah. if yeah. some of that is... And if some of that is what you just said is is finding the way to make uh, the connection, you know, facts are one thing, but sometimes it's like the facts that they expect or the things that aren't facts that they expect that were lies or they just they, they've been given a scenario or a character description that's not accurate. And that's part of the problem is this false identity has been built up in the other person. Oh, anyway, um, just just yeah. finding ways to, and not 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 disruptive that's harmful. Or, you know, leaves them so off kilter they can't function. But just you have to blow up the expectations so that once there's a little bit of a crack, you can come in. You can get your foot in the door. God, yeah. tortured metaphors here. You get your foot in the door as a perception and get some trust to build on. Because as long as you're just encased, if they've already cast you in concrete and there's no way to break out of that, then there's no way to bridge that divide either. And And what you were just saying is... I mean, part of that is – then the other thing is finding a surprise link, a surprise commonality that they didn't expect that's yeah. not part of the script they think that you're going to go by. Right. But the more you, right. I can break out of the script they perceive me to be in – and part – the one thing that's easy is everything is so damn stereotyped and so damn predicted, and it sounds like a joke, but you can – you know, like, oh, you just want to eye, eye roll about this. But if you can take that as a wep – weaponize that and use it to your advantage and come back and – a surprise and much less a surprise commonality and find uniform, you know, anything to find that, some that, common ground with them. that yeah. common ground, Larry, that you're talking about is what the authors of that study, why this Because then you can't be an other if you have something in common. Right. right. And, and that, yeah. that, um, that common ground seems to be why stories related to threat resonate so much because it, it's such a universally accepted fact that we all want to avoid danger we all want to be able to provide for our families. We all want to have some sense of safety and well-being. So that's why those stories of threat might resonate so much. And that's why um, protests like uh, the Black Lives Matter movement um, have taken off at, po at points of story of tragic stories of loss. You know, th that these things seem to be very much in common, that the common link does seem to be a sense of safety and wanting to be able to provide for each other. Um, Charlotte brings up a great comment here, I just want to say. Speaking of mental health, one thing I've learned and I'm still trying to get used to is to not equate my mental illness with my identity. Instead of, I am depressed or I am anxious, I try to say I'm a person dealing with depression or I am a person living with anxiety to remind myself that I am not my illness. Charlotte, that's that's a beautiful example here of how sometimes identities can be used for 
for good in terms of I am not a smoker um, and sometimes how they can lead to problems like I am a depressed person. If that becomes your sense of identity, it can also um, sometimes make it harder to overcome those problems. And that's also where some of the we don't have the time to get into this, Larry, but some of the controversy around uh, cochlea implants, um, uh, implants that can allow deaf people to begin to, to hear um, how this completely changes everything for the community and why there's been controversy around that, because uh, the deaf community really? is. Yeah, it, it's it's a community. Wow. It's an it's an identity. And here's something that is now changing that sense of identity. So this stuff gets very complicated once you start looking at all the layers. It gets very complicated. And well, I know that's that to me. Res, that and I don't know the status of this, but to me, as a person who is straight, not gay, but I remember hearing so just the debate in the scientific world, debating whether being homosexual or somewhere on the that end of the spectrum as far as gender identity goes, that if that was DNA based or not, right? Like you're right. born gay. And for some people, that was like a relief and it was going to be a justification to, you know, to finally have uh, gender equality that way, homosexual rights in the original terminology. But then how a lot of people in the gay community resented that and didn't want it to be DNA based. And it sounds like that's an echo of what you're saying there with the deaf community not wanting the cochlear implants. It's like, don't you welcome this? And it's it's like it's unsettling and and different. It's yeah. it's yeah. it's very much complicated. Um, yeah, if if anyone's interested in the intersection between all of these things that we're talking about, about sexuality and mental health and also identity, a fantastic episode of This American Life is called 81 Words. It is a story of how homosexuality was removed as a mental illness. And it's about everything we're talking about. There, the science was always there, but it took identity and storytelling and politics to get it removed as a mental illness. So if, if you're interested in this topic, 81 Words, my favorite episode of This American Life. Check it out. Thanks for listening to the Life Support Live podcast. We'd love to get your feedback on this episode. I'm at Alimatu on social media. And I'm at Larry Nemechek. Hey, if you like this show, we'd really appreciate it if you could leave us a review. It'll help more people to discover life support. And you can join the community at our Life Support Live Facebook group. If you'd like to learn more about psychology and mental health, check out my YouTube channel at youtube.com slash The Psych Show. And for a deeper dive into all things Trekland, like Portal 47, check out Larry Nemechek's Trekland on Facebook and YouTube. Until next time... Live long and prosper. Trek well, everyone.